on the board, we have described our proposed reflections for the morning that we would like to cover. Now, we put these two up together, Pasadi Samadhi, because they are so closely interwoven, as are all the factors of awakening closely interwoven, <coughs> but these two are even more closely interwoven. So we're talking about tranquility, serenity, calm as a factor of awakening. Now, the very first thing we need to do is to turn these again into verbs. Now, when we turn tranquility into a verb, it doesn't sound that attractive, <laughs> tranquilizing, you know. <laughs> you think about going to sleep, you know. <laughs> but clearly, that's not what we're talking about. Calming. But let's think about tranquilizing in that in that context of calming. But it is so important to talk, turn them into verbs because I think there's often a kind of misconception that calm is a byproduct of meditation, which on one level it is, you know, the, but the idea that we just have to kind of sit in an agitated fashion long enough and then we'll luckily stumble across calm. Hmm? as a state. But bearing in mind in the factors of awakening, we are always talking about cultivations. So we are always putting calming, really, I would say, into the midst of agitation, into the midst of proliferation, into the midst of worry, into the midst of anxiety, we are putting calm into the midst of all of that. So it is calming, calming. And it is, I, the reason I stress putting it into a verb form is because when we think about calm as a noun, then again we're just thinking about a state. You know, a state that comes and goes. If we're lucky, it stays a while. If we're unlucky, it disappears. But that is the nature of states, is that they come and go. So calming is an umbrella factor that we're actually applying to all states. Now, what are we calming? What are we calming? Well, some of the things I've already mentioned, but we're calming the formations in the mind. And we're calming also the formations in the body. We're calming we're calming greed, we're calming aversion, we're calming anxiety. So it's actually talking about also a kind of shift in inner relationship because we're actually forming a relationship with these more difficult or unskillful states. We're forming a dialogue with them, a conversation with them. What does it mean to calm this that is present if it is unhelpful? And being aware that calming, pasadi, is, is a direct antidote to anxiety of worry. It's a quality of non-excitement, we might say, non-agitation. Now, again, this can feel a little, we can have a little apprehension around that because, you know, excitement we often see as a virtue again, you know, just like misery. 
It's funny our list of virtues, isn't it? <laughs> that we see excitement as a virtue. Excitement gets equated with being alive, with being awake, with you know being intense. But remembering yesterday in our discussion, we were talking really about a different quality of aliveness, weren't we? The aliveness of virya, the aliveness of interest, the aliveness of curiosity. Whereas excitement is very much linked, of course, to events again. Um, and being aware too that I think in practice, you know, calming or non-excitement is often seen as being a kind of like suspended state, bored. You know, I'm bored. That's the opposite of excitement. You know, if I'm not excited, I'm just bored. So I look for something to be excited about, and there's almost endless possibilities. So we're calming the body, being aware of how the body, on a very practical level, being aware of how the body becomes a vehicle for an agitated mind. That when there's restlessness, worry in the mind, the body begins to move. The sense doors become hungry. You know, how can I feed the sense doors? I mean, we see that in retreats all the time, don't we? With the endless fascination with the notice board. I mean, hardly anything ever changes <laughs> there from day to day. And sometimes you go out and see people absolutely staring with a sense of awe or, I don't know, expectancy. And somehow, like, it's going to come to life like a TV screen or something, you know. But it just stays the same. And that actually doesn't so, but we can really see how the sense doors become hungry. Hmm? when there's agitation. And this is part of mindfulness of the body, is calming the sense doors, calming the body, rather than prowling or being a kind of beggar at the sense doors. We're calming agitation and heedlessness. Hmm? Heedlessness is also a kind of agitation. You know, forgetfulness is a kind of agitation. It's not knowing where we are. It's not knowing how we're placed. We're calming craving. Calming craving. Because just being mindful of how craving, tanha, this thirst, unquenchable thirst that John referred to yesterday, what an agitated state it is. I mean, have you ever been in the midst of craving and been really calm? <laughs> it, it's not. It's, it's leaning forward. It's that wanting. It's an agitated state. The mind has no serenity in it in the midst of craving. But also calming aversion, because aversion is a very agitated state. It's a very contracted, busy, fix-it, agitated state. We're calming our own reactions to unsatisfactoriness at times, because unsatisfactoriness, when moved, when viewed, through the eyes of delusion, is telling us that something is wrong, something is missing. So we scour the moment to fix it, to lean forward. Now, in the Satipatthana Sutta, you can see in the contemplation of the body how much emphasis is given to calming the body, calming the body, because if we calm the body, we have so many more possibilities to actually really see and calm the agitation in the mind. 
We see in the Satipatthana Sutta the, the instructions to stop, to pause, to relax into the body, to be mindful of the body, to be mindful when the body's moving. What is pushing the body? Is it intention or is it agitation? So again, we can see how calming is really working in conjunction with mindfulness. And the more we calm, the calmer we are. That is simply a reality. It is what we are feeding. It is what we are nurturing. As we begin to calm the body, we see more possibilities of beginning to calm the mind because the agitated mind is, is very rarely feels like a friend. We're starting to really get a sense of what, what excitement looks like, what apprehension looks like, what worry looks like, what preoccupation looks like. And we start to see its unsatisfactoriness. <coughs> Not in a judgmental, critical way, but we start to see its unsatisfactoriness. And particularly, and we have talked about this so much over the days, we are calming proliferation. We are calming papancha. The fear of what might be, the fear of loss, the fear of being control, out of control, all the agitated behavior that is born of those fears, the worry that's forgotten about impermanence. I mean, fear is one of the powerful states of agitation. But you can see in Papancha, you see what needs to be calmed. Because Papancha runs on the juice. You know, this proliferation runs on the juice of craving. It runs on the juice of aversion. It runs on the juice of opinions. It runs on the juice of fear. And particularly, it runs around the juice of I am. That is all the juice of Papancha of proliferation, the places that we can feel so lost and helpless. So it is actually calming what is underneath the proliferating content. Instead of telling ourselves just to let go, we're looking at what the juice is. And calming is something we cultivate. Serenity, pasadi is something we cultivate. We relax into the moment. One of the alternative ways of looking at this as an alternative translation um, is also stilling as well as calming. So we're stilling the agitations of not body and mind. I always try to make this clear that it's not body and mind, it's body-mind. We know, for example, when there are agitated thoughts, there's usually agitated respiration. Um, there's usually movement of some kind. So the two are not separate. We're not talking about two separate things, two separate phenomena. We're talking about two phenomena are absolutely interlinked, absolutely interdependent. And so when we start to still the agitation, actually what in the yoga tradition some of you might know of is called Chitta Vritti Naroda, which is calming or stilling the fluctuations of mind and body calming the fluctuations or stilling the fluctuations of chitta, what is going on in consciousness, and all of the things that uh, Christina has referred to, all of the greed, aversion, and delusions. Remember the quote, and I think it's still on the board that I wrote up yesterday. Notice the words which are used, that the Buddha deliberately used, delirium, palpitation, 
you know, to describe this state. This is the state of the I am. It is activity, it is disturbance. And so one of the images that often comes through from the texts, and which some of you will be very familiar with, is becoming like a still forest pool. And the whole point of this, and this is why the Pasadi and, and Samadhi, you can't really talk about them separately. They're absolutely interrelated. In fact, one, in a sense, is an outcome of the other. Through the gradual stilling of the mind, this tranquilization, this calming, this stilling starts to occur. As we gradually, gradually begin to hone the mind, concentrate the mind, not get caught up in this vast fluctuations uh, where we wildly swing from one thing to the other. I think this is very well captured, isn't it, in the, in the hindrance, in the fourth hindrance of restlessness and worry. You know, this is such a common state for us all, isn't it, to dwell in this restlessness and worry. Um, in one of the uh, Mahayana, in one of the Mahayana scriptures, the Vodhichara Avatara, there's a wonderful little thing, which the Dalai Lama is very fond of quoting, um, which is actually helping to calm. It's actually incurring in the patience section in the Vodhichara Avatara, this guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And it says, if you can do something about it, why worry? If you can't do anything about it, why worry? <laughs> Yet the agitation and the worry that is doing you know, something about it, always attempting to do something about our lives. And the doing here often is a very mixed sense of doing in that we're thinking thinking, 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 and as we think, we dig bigger and bigger holes for ourselves which we can't arise out of. So, as Christina absolutely rightly says, proliferation is an enormous part of this. We're stilling the tendency to this absolutely inveterate proliferation which we get caught up in and which we think ultimately is us and we take terribly seriously. You know? um, one of the things that happens, of course, in our minds is every thought that passes through my own minds is us, you know, in some way or another. We take it seriously. I joked about it one day, I can't remember which day it was, and said, you know, these thoughts ought to have a label which says, just passing through. <laughs> you know, because that's all they're doing. Yet when we start to drop, when we start to relinquish the attachment and the grasping after all of the thought patterns, all of the mental proliferation, then this stilling as a process starts to occur. Um, and it's very, very interlinked. In the text, for example, it says calmness and tranquility in this stilling process um, occurs when a certain level of concentration is achieved. You know, so it's about concentrating the mind, beginning to bring it back from its scatteredness and fragmentedness you know, into some form, and this is, why it's this is why it's related to sati, where we go right back to the first day of recollecting, recollecting ourselves, bringing ourselves back from that fragmented state that we're all too often in, which is the state of papancha, which is the state of obsession and proliferation, which we engage in really at the drop of a hat, you know, 
every perception virtually, this is what the Buddha is saying, he says this in the Madhupindika Sutta, the Honeyball Sutta, for those of you who know the texts, he says that everything that we perceive, we think about, and that which we think about, we proliferate. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a pretty nasty recipe, really, <laughs> in the sense that uh, we just get caught up in these endless cycles of narrative and thought and worry and restlessness, and there's very little stillness behind it. Yet, within some traditions, it's not particularly, uh, I think it's a useful thought, within some traditions, in actually talking about stilling, they also talk about the stillness which is behind the activity. There is a stillness that remains. In in other words, that which observes fear isn't agitated. That which observes anxiety isn't agitated there is a stillness which is already there, a kind of a deep underlying sense of non-movement, which is the observation of the movement, however we identify with the one rather than the other. And this can be a useful thought, although in the early text it's much more a process which is indicated, a process of moving moving from agitation towards stillness. It also occurs, this feeling of pasadi, this tranquilization, this stilling, it occurs when feelings of tiredness and all other unpleasant feelings subside without effort. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had that, that stilling that often can occur through natural beauty, for example, when all of the things, you might have struggled up a hill or up a, you know, up a up a sort of steep slope to to watch a beautiful view to see a sunset or something and suddenly despite the tiredness and all of the effort there is this wonderful sense of stillness that actually encompasses you when you begin to in some sense be absorbed by the landscape when you actually begin to see no separation between observer and observed at all That is when all thought, when all worry, when all tiredness that literally drops away by itself. Um, It would almost be an oxymoron, wouldn't it, to be, we must make an effort towards stillness. (laughs) Because that becomes actually, in a sense, also agitation. So this is something which is occurring through levels of concentration. I mean, just a couple of, just very brief things I just want to add here. It, it's, you know, when John said that what we, you know, perceive and think about, you know, become, but it becomes a tendency. Agitation becomes a tendency. You know, and, and it goes on to say that what we frequently dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And you can sort of get a sense of that, how your mind starts to get this familiar shape all too familiar, that you can wake up in the morning, it's almost like the tendency is there waiting for you. You know, worrying about the day, worrying about what's to come. So it's, it's really sensing, again, those neural pathways, those grooves we walk, that actually become a tendency. A tendency almost like a reference point from which we relate to life however it is. Something can be lovely, but we're still worrying about it. Mm. You know? 
We're still worrying about it. What, what if it changes into something else? You know? So it becomes a tendency of mind. And it's really seen that with the cultivation of calming, and you know, we actually are creating a new neural pathway, but you could almost say we're creating a wholesome habit. Mm. The wholesome habit of calming. Now, the other part, and this is just something I just want to touch on very briefly, you know, because it, yesterday it was brought up, you know, the relationship of this kind of inner contemplation and then how we move out into changing things you know, meeting suffering in the world, meeting the unacceptable. And I think it's just so helpful to really see that wise action very rarely follows from an agitated mind. Wise speech very rarely follows from an agitated mind. That the very shape of the mind is in turn shaping <coughs> our actions and our speech. And so that sense of calming, stilling inwardly, is actually opening the doorway for what we call wise action, wise response, the, the kind of appropriate response that the situation in our lives actually requires. Mm -hmm. And agitation, you always have to remember, agitation is born of confusion. Yeah, it's born of the almost existential confusion that we find with being in this world. And this is not pejorative, it's not condemnatory, it's nothing to feel guilty about, it's just our existential dilemma. This is the way we are. We find ourselves almost, and I joke about this in some ways, but I'm serious in others, it's almost like being dropped into a landscape with no map. And uh, you have to try and find your way around the best you can out of this rather confused state. Now, this being dropped into a landscape without any map is called birth. <laughs> yeah. We have no map to guide us other than the confused maps that others have around you, which they communicate to you. <laughs> um, and often give you the wrong directions. Like this is classic, actually, in India. Nobody in India will actually usually tell you that they don't know the direction to anywhere. So you ask them the direction and they go, <laughs> like this, and point in some direction, and you go and find out it was in completely the opposite direction. <laughs> but this actually, joking aside, is often the way it is with life, because the, the information that we get from parents, from peers, from society, often is equally confused and just adds to the confusion. So this confusion is, uh, is the basis for our fundamental agitation. You know, that, that underlies everything. So it's actually trying, when there, is, when there is the absence of agitation, there is the possibility, and I only say the possibility, because it still needs to be actualized, of something called in Pali, sati sampajanya, which is clear comprehension. You know, the clear comprehension of something, the real seeing. Going back to the, the still lake, and again, this is an image that's used so much in Buddhist thought. Um, the still lake reflects what is. The agitated lake, that which is all broken up and choppy, doesn't reflect other, anything other than distortion. So what we get is distortion, like one of those refracting mirrors that breaks everything up. Um, this is the position that we're in. So 
when we start to concentrate and hone the mind in certain ways, and pasadi comes as a natural consequence, it's calming, tranquilization, and stilling, we begin to have a clearer view of what is there. Rather than the mere identification, and I say identification deliberately because we create it as part of our identity. Identification, identity is also a process itself. Um, that we begin to drop that identification. We begin to move much towards the stilling stillness. It's again, um, the word in Pali Pasadi has both of those connotations, stilling stillness. Yeah. And although we haven't specifically mentioned it, I think it is just worth putting a marker on this. You know, we talked about joy yesterday. I think every moment of stillness we've ever experienced in our lives, that calming has a taste of freedom. It has a flavor of joy, of delight, of sweetness, you know, which is often actually what brings us back to a cushion mm. you know, and inspires us, you know, encourages all, all of that kind of perseverance and effort. It is the flavor, it is a flavor of sweetness of sufficiency. So I think, shall we just move right on here? Okay. <laughs> oh. Choreographing as well. I have another page. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get off so lightly. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Very briefly. It's, it's also just to notice when there is agitation, there's no sense of refuge in the mind. Hmm? There's no sense of refuge in the mind. When there is calmness and stillness, there's a profound sense of refuge within the heart. You can rest there hmm? in that absence of worry. Um, Can I, can I just say yes, one last yes. thing? Yes. <laughs> because this is something I feel that is very, that's very, very important. This is another aspect which often can seem divorced. Um, when there is stillness, when there is the lack of agitation, there is the genuine seeing of others. Yeah. There is the genuine seeing of others when there is this stillness, this tranquilization of the mind. When the mind becomes less self-obsessed, when we are not so much caught up in that form of self-obsession, which we so often are, which is related to the I am. Then, to utilize a phrase that's used actually by a philosopher, but I think it's a lovely phrase, we become a cleared space. We become a cleared space for the manifestation of what is. It's like that forest clearing where you suddenly see something. You know, having walked through the density of the forest, you walk into a clearing, and everything becomes spacious and things are seen. This is the same with this process that we're speaking of. It is actually a process, the process of stimming and stilling and calmness is not my calm, my stillness. It's stillness and calm which allows the world to be seen, to re be released and others to be released into themselves. We talked a little bit about relationship last night. 
where there is a lack of stillness, again, where there is a lack of calmness, often relationship is very difficult. Because again, rather than negotiated change or stillnesses, there is conflicting agitations coming together. You know, and agitation feeds on agitation. And something I could spend actually a long time talking about is actually this feeding process. How we feed each other and how we feed our repressions and how we feed our disturbances. Almost, again, as if it's a virtue to keep on feeding it. You know, just like we feed our bodies. So when we begin to glimpse this stilling and calming um, that Christina has so eloquently spoken about, we begin to allow others in. And when we allow others in, there becomes the possibility of all those great virtues that we can struggle and struggle and struggle and think they're virtues and try and develop, but come about naturally when things are seen. Metta is a way of seeing the world. It's not something I do to it. Yeah. Karuna, metta, for those who are not familiar with these words, kindness is something that comes and arises naturally out of calmness, out of stillness. Karuna, compassion, arises out of that lack of agitation, the lack of the meing or the eyeing here, when others can be truly seen in often their own distress and their own pain as well. And so I think there's a natural concomitant of the stilling process. We become close to others rather than withdrawn. The climate and culture of individualism, I think, which permeates not just America, but the West in general, is one of agitation. It's one of fear. It's one of anxiety. It's one of depression. Yeah. Uh, one European psychologist, philosopher and psychotherapist actually said the whole of Western culture is severely depressed <laughs> you know, and, and locked into itself. Somebody you might have heard of, it's uh, somebody working in France called Julia Kristeva. Julia Kristeva, it's often pronounced Kristeva, but it's pronounced Kristeva. Um, she's written quite a lot about this, if you're interested. I can give you titles if you want to know. So when we begin to become less self-centered, not so dominated by the agitation, we allow others in. We allow them into a stillness, rather than trying to make them as agitated as us. <laughs> now, why aren't you worried? I'm worried. <laughs> That's a phrase that we often often hear. So I think we can pass on that. Did you want me to start? Yeah, I may start. Okay, samadhi. I mean, this is so related to the calming, but I, I think it, <coughs> it's again, it's it's not an easy word to translate into English because samadhi, in my understanding, it is really holding within it the whole array and spectrum of meditative practices that we engage in on one level. But samadhi is also the, the collecting and the gathering of the energy of the mind. The collecting and the gathering of the energy of the mind. The focusing the energy of the mind, which again has been backed, you know, which has behind it, all those forerunning qualities of investigation, of sati and, and uh, en energy, joy, it's just collecting and gathering all of those energies of the mind. 
to contemplate more deeply. Now, samadhi is often used in a very specific way, the way that people hear it, I think, often in Western teaching, as concentration, and which is, of course, one element of samadhi. But it would be too narrow a sliver of the pie, again, to think of it just as concentration. There is also a samadhi that is brought and cultivated in every moment of our lives, not just on the cushion, but also off the cushion. We are cultivating samadhi. We are learning to collect, collect and gather our focus of our attentiveness. Now, we all, most people would recognize that this is actually the Achilles heel of our lives, isn't it? How to collect and be, how to be collected and gathered in the present moment. Hmm? How easily, you know, and isn't it what many people find themselves struggling with in their former practice, you know, the mind that is just running amok, you know, has a life of its own, you know, uh, just doing, going places we have never had any intention of going. So it's the Achilles heel, not only of our practice, but also of our lives. How easy it is to be uncollected, ungathered. This is what we call often kind of a state of distractedness, a state of uncenteredness, a state of ungroundedness. And the Buddha compared the mind without samadhi as like it being a fish taken out of water and flapping about on dry land, you know, just going this way and that way and not really known, and out of the water, out of its home. Kind of panicked. Panicked is sometimes the word. I think it kind of that describes that sense of the mind being completely ungrounded. Um, and we can see that without samadhi in our lives, without that sense of collectedness and gatheredness, how vulnerable the mind is. The mind becomes very vulnerable to the unskillful, very vulnerable to the kind of force of impulse, the force of reactivity, the force of the unskillful. The mind is simply in a state of vulnerability without collectedness and gatheredness. So we're not endeavoring to make the mind invulnerable because that word has a, you know, not a so, so helpful connotation. But the mind is just not so prey to everything that suddenly appears. Now, samadhi, in my understanding, is a very direct training in renunciation. And again, this is a word not popular, not high on our list of virtues. But it is a very primary word in Buddhist teaching, renunciation. Because renunciation is both a path to joy and expression of happiness. It is a path to freedom and it is an expression of freedom. So we can see how, you know, when we translate this into formal meditation practice, you know, actually everything we do on retreats, you know, is renunciation by stealth. We sneak it in here, you know. You look at the schedule. What are we renouncing? Our desire to, our need to control everything, to be, you know, governing our world by our impulses. We see the silence. It's renunciation of that need always to have the feedback to tell us we're okay in this world. You know, we have a schedule that means actually, you know, instead of me running around the world doing what I want, not doing what I don't want, we actually allow ourselves to be governed by a bell. Isn't that interesting? You know, and it's a renunciation. When we come back to the moment, 
Where are we coming back from? Proliferation, just sense of distractedness. So training and renunciation. This has much to do with this collecting and gathering energy of the mind. Huh? We're actually, and, and you know, we use the word training a lot in Buddhist teaching. We're actually training the mind. I almost re, almost prefer the word re-educating. Re-educating the, the tendencies, the kind of context of what goes on. Do you want to? Yes, I just wanted to make a few comments about the word samadhi, um, because often it's seen in too narrow a technical sense, often associated particularly with very deep concentration-type practices, um, such as the jhanas, the absorption practices. And it has a technical sense there, but actually samadhi is used in a much, much broader sense, um, particularly when it's related to the bhajangas, when it's related to the factors of awakening. Because it means any cultivation practices are samadhis and have samadhi coming out of it. So concentration is a natural product, if you want to even use the word concentration, or a more focused mind is a natural outcome of any practice, bhavana, cultivation, which aims at calm, insight, metta, karuna, and so on and so forth. So it's a much, much broader spectrum word than we actually usually uh, think of it, particularly in retreat centers where often there will be samadhi-type practices which are very focused, particularly on jhana-type practices. So we've got to hear it in this broadest sense. And actually, I think this broadest sense of cultivation is actually a much nicer sense here because it means that we're cultivating across the range of our faculties. We're not just cultivating one particular dimension, the ability to concentrate one on one object, on one-pointedness. Uh, it has that connotation as well, but it's you know, much broader than that. That out, for example, out of the ability to watch the mind in, with sati and what's going on, the fluctuations of the mind, the, the, the uh, bringing it back to a base every so often, and touching home with, you know, touching home there with that object, whatever it might be, there is also concentration going to arise as a natural outcome. As a natural outcome of developing kindness, that's a natural outcome of developing compassion, there is also concentration comes about. Now concentration here, if I'm just using that as a word even to, um, to translate the term samadhi, which again is a fairly untranslatable word, um, so we're kind of stuck with concentration a little bit here. Um, but when we begin to see it in this broadest sense, then we're cultivating across the full range of our faculties. And we're cultivating something that is already there in our minds. Most of us have the ability to concentrate and to cultivate that, upon, that which we have interest in. So if you have interest in something, you will cultivate and you will develop it. And you will notice, even in the most mundane thing, you know, such as a you know, favourite hobby, painting, playing a musical instrument, even watching cinema, you know, films, um, you will notice how the mind will hone in and distraction 
won't be a big part of it. Yeah. Um, phrases that are often used which I think indicate this gathering which Christina is talking about, you know, be it on you know, the mundane or even being it on the virtues that we talk about in Buddhism, you will notice eyeing drops away to a degree during that, you know, during that focused nature. We have phrases, don't we? Where did time go? You know, over that period, you, know, you could be watching, you know, being absorbed in reading for a couple of hours and not notice it and feeling like a couple of minutes or something has really grabbed your attention. You could be doing your favourite hobby, but you could also, when you're truly, truly absorbed into the development of something like metta, the cultivation of metta, the cultivation, the gathering of the mind, also time will drop away and the eyeing will drop away. Now, we have to understand that this process, again, of cultivating samadhi, cultivating this gatheredness, this collectedness, really is a journey. Huh? It's a journey. It is a cultivation. Now, for most of us in practice, one of the ways that that journey can be framed is that it's a being a journey from applied mindfulness to sustained mindfulness, or applied <coughs> attention to sustained attention. Now, applied attention is, is where we often find ourselves in meditation practice. You know, we sit down or we walk and we have the intention to be present, the intention to breathe with mindfulness, and then we forget and we come back, we apply the attention again, we forget again, we apply it again, we forget again. But of course, the, the training in doing that means that we're actually moving towards this more sustained samadhi. Now, the applied samadhi actually requires a lot of effort, you know, a lot of perseverance, a lot of patience, a lot of kindness, because there's a lot of rocks in the road with perseverance, patience, and kindness, that applied samadhi will turn into a more naturalized, sustained samadhi. A more naturalized, sustained samadhi. But the rocks in the road are actually, it's a journey through the hindrance factors. You know, the movement from applied, applied mindfulness to sustained mindfulness is for most folks, a journey through the hindrance factors. And again, we have to really recognize that we're not looking at the hindrance factors then as something that blocks that journey, huh? but that the hindrance factors hold within them a world of insight. The hindrance factors of, of sloth and torpor that we've spoken about, of the restlessness and worry that we've spoken about, of the craving, the aversion, and the doubt that we've spoken about. These factors that we often think about just as problems, something to get over, they are what keep diverting the samadhi. They keep hijacking the samadhi. And I think it's very important to see that in our lives and in our practice, that the samadhi that is possible for us keeps getting hijacked, basically, by some, this range of mental states. So the movement through, and, and, and if we move through these veiling factors, it's not just because we get more and more concentrated and then we're suppressing them. 
you know, I always feel a bit uncomfortable with this term that gets bandied around in, in Buddhist meditation circles, you know, that samadhi suppresses the hindrances. Well, if we suppress them, guess what's going to happen? They're going to bounce right back. They're going to bounce right back. So I'm nev- I've always found much more helpful myself to understand that in that journey through the hindrance factors that hijack samadhi, divert samadhi, there is a world of insight. And if we don't see them as a world of insight, quite frankly, we are not going on to the next factor of awakening, which is opeka and liberation. Mm. You know, because to see them as a world of insight is absolutely essential. I mean, when we look within the hindrance factors, the veiling factors, we see the world of clinging, we see the world of selfing, we see the world of confusion, we see the world of distorted perception. We see all of that held within what we so glibly at times call, oh, it's just a hindrance. Well, actually, that's the world of avidya. That's the world of ignorance. Mm. That's the world of distortion. Hmm? So these are not things that we, you know, conveniently or somehow, you know, maneuver our way around and get over. This is the territory of ignorance. It's the territory of delusion. It's the territory of confusion. So you can actually trace that often in your own formal practice, that the more and more clear, mindful you become, the veiling factors start to become more transparent. It's not that you've got over them. They are holding less authority. They are becoming more transparent because only, only if we are embracing them as a world of understanding within the world of confusion. If they don't become more transparent, it's because we have made them into, again, this word, you know, problem, obstacle, hindrance, something to get past. So actually this journey of samadhi, this movement into a more naturalized, sustained samadhi, not only in the cushion, but in every area of our life, is a journey that comes to fruition through embracing the states of mind that veil our capacity to be with the way things are. I just want to kind of add to that, not really saying anything different to what Christine was saying, but just perhaps slightly putting it in a different way, is that often we're very ill-served by translations, and hindrance is a very bad translation, basically, of this word. The word that Christina, I don't know if you're picking up on it, but the word Christina keeps using is the word veil. That is literally the meaning of the term nivarana, which is actually the Pali term. It means literally to throw or to cast a net or a veil over something so that you don't see it. Now, actually, when you begin to recognize, when you look at a hindrance, let's, because we're stuck with this word, unfortunately, um, when you begin to perceive something like sensual desire or ill will or sloth and torpor and, and so on and so forth, doubt as worry and restlessness, when we begin to perceive those in our experience, when we begin to see them, in some ways we've seen through them. It's when they're unrecognized that they are the major problem. Constantly, constantly familiarizing yourself with this tendency of mind to drop into these um, ways of veiling reality, we begin to see our way through. We begin to see our way through them. Um, would you say the veil 
Fear is a, well, the fear is a factor that's usually linked to ill will or aversion, so fear is an intrinsic part of that, yes. Yeah, we're fearful, I mean, actually even in our confused state we're fearful of letting go of the confusion, often, because the confusion is what we know. Um, and so, yes, fear is an enormous part of it. I feel that fear is actually part of the ill will, so when I see fear arising I'm really seeing what I don't want to happen. That's what I'm really saying. Because fear is about fear of something happening to us. It's, it's also, and I think it's, it's very important to have this broader vision because, you know, I, I mean, you know, teaching retreats a lot, you know, I see over and over again, you know, people just making themselves miserable through trying to get over the hindrance factors mm. so that they can really begin to practice. You know, and, and it, it's so important to broaden that context because, you know, of course, when you sit on a cushion or you're on a walking path, you know, you have a much more direct meeting with mental states. You know, because the rest of our lives, those mental states are often tempered or softened or we're distracted from them by, you know, other activities. And, of course, you know, when we don't have all of that, what we get is our mental states. But to broaden the context of, of seeing these veiling factors as doorways to insight is, of course, to understand that they don't just happen on retreat. Mm. You know, if you look at every psychological, emotional storm of agitation in our life, you are going to find either one or probably all of these factors present. So the really big encouragement we're making here is that to understand that a kind of sustained and naturalized mindfulness is born of the insight into what clouds or veils our capacity to mm. see things as they actually are. Mm. Yeah. Of course it does. Well, the, you have to. I mean, people have very vivid night lives on retreat. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you ever prowl these hallways at night, you know, oh goodness me, you, you think, <laughs> you know, what's going on behind those doors? You know, but it is true. People have very vivid night lives on retreat. Sometimes very vivid dreams, very graphic dreams, sometimes very graphic nightmares. Now, you have to remember it's the same consciousness that is operating through mm -hmm. the night as in the day. You know, it's not like we have one in the, lying in our bed waiting for us. <laughs> it is just because there's less clear comprehension in the night that some of the emotional themes take on much more bizarre imagery. And the other huh? time, like at, at night, I guess my, my common feeling was that in the day I have my tools with me and I can figure it out. Yes. But as, as you're, as you're mindful, you know, I mean, like for in Tibetan practices, mm -hmm. they talk about, you know, mindful dreaming. And this sounds like something really esoteric. But actually, the more your mindfulness actually deepens and is stabilized, the more it actually is also present in your dreams. Mm -hmm. And you start to get one of those bizarre scenarios, you know, where you're about to jump off a cliff. And there's this little voice that comes up and says, oh, maybe I don't have to. But I think what is very, very, uh, you know, so that actually does start to seep through. 
into the dream states. I think what is very important, you know, it's, first of all, it's often very helpful to go to sleep with metta practice. Mm. Very helpful. Soften, relax the mind. You're almost going to sleep with a sense of intentionality. The other thing that's very, very important is to wake up with a commitment to being aware of the state of your mind. Because dreams, like any other big story, tends to leave residues behind it. And if we're not aware of how we actually start our day, the mental state with which we start our day, too often that mental state, unattended, gets solidified and more concrete and becomes mm. a mental state that then is kind of like tracking us or guiding us or pushing us through the day. So, you know, surrounding sleep with intentionality, with mindfulness, then you probably end up like most Dharma teachers, chronic insomniacs, but... <laughs> <laughs> Never <laughs> 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 made that link. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Actually, the one thing I think that's really, really important is this business of actually looking at your state of mind when you wake up in the morning before actually exiting the bed or doing anything. <clears throat> and also tracking it, tracking what happens, uh, tracking how we actually almost like slip on the mood as we slip on our clothes in the morning. And, and gradually that mood often gets more and more solidified as the day. So it's very interesting to watch just that process of us taking on the familiar. You know, the mind will have its residue from whatever it's been dreaming or perhaps not even dreaming in many cases. Um, but watch just how we will slip into the familiar very, very quickly. It's really where there is always a state of mind. Yeah. You know, there is never a time when there is not a state of mind. Mm. The third foundation of mindfulness, mm. you know. And, you know, part of those, those states of mind are, of course, what we call the hindrances. You know, they're not mm. separate from that. Mm. And actually, the, you know, what we call the hindrances tend to have all kind of like, you know, extended families. Yeah. You know, like aversion, you know, has the extended family of impatience, frustration, you know demand, insistence, you know, so being aware that all of the hindrance factors have these kind of cousins and aunts and uncles, you know, hanging around the scenes, you know. Mm. And so it's actually really, really helpful to, and, and this is why sometimes, you know, like the short list of five, I find is actually quite helpful. Mm. Because you're getting kind of like to the patriarch and the matriarch of the family, you know. Who's really holding the reins here, you know, rather than all the cousins and third cousins and all the rest of it. And, and if you can get really to the heart of the family, you're actually starting to, to simplify and to calm and to begin to see through, as John said, see through the state of mind, see through that veiling character. This is a very good description, I think, of the meditation process, meeting the family. <laughs> That's what it is, just meeting the family. Yeah. Yeah, just say hello every so often. <laughs> Don't hold on to them, though. <laughs> feels like my mind's way of connecting to my world of people and it feels like that's my way of connecting and to take this leap of faith 
that deeper connection, which I know from a, uh, you know, from some experience, yeah. that there is a deep connection that can come from, uh, but this is like such a huge leap of faith, yeah. tremendous courage, because it means being willing to um, happily let, be willing to let go of connection to other people as mind experiences it. Yeah. Like, really let go of relationship moment to moment. Really, like, mm. really let go. Now, I, the question is, you know, the fear is, is that kind of letting go of the proliferation is going to, you know, there's the faith that there may be another way of connecting. And a faith not is only based on faith, but actually other experiences of connecting actually deeply with people without the proliferation. But the, the awareness that the proliferation seems to keep a bond going, seems to keep a bond going. But actually, you know what, in the proliferation, I mean, we're not actually connecting, we're connecting with our story about mm. people connecting with our story about people, <coughs> not necessarily with the person themselves. I mean, we can connect with people in many other ways. You know, you can connect with people, for example, through loving-kindness practice. It's a very different way of connecting with people using the mind rather than the story about them. But, uh, I mean, it, it is in a way a courageous step to actually think what would our world be like if we let go of, our, you know, if we just didn't live through our story about it. Well, no, it's not because you've actually already mentioned you've mm. ever experienced other moments when there's ways of connecting and being present that is not through the story. Mm. Yeah, and I think. But you know, that only happens. That 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 happens. That like experience and period of time happened when there was a dropping away of identity. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that, you know, that's the only time that that has happened. Absolutely. And when I fought a dropping away of identity. In another experience, I didn't learn from that. All those things you said last night, when that happened again, you know, I don't know why all those things happened the first time in, in a wholesome way. When it happened again, and there was a loss of identity, I fought it so fiercely, and there was none of that connection. Right. And I've tried to hold the connection through the story. So I know what you're saying. Yeah. But it's terrifying to think, even in that moment of meditation, you know, and, and there's the choice of proliferation or just the breathing, just the breathing. Just the stilling. It's so boring. <laughs> yes, but, but, but boredom, I mean, first of all, there's so much in what you're saying because, you know, our narrative about other people, of course, is linked to our narrative about ourselves. So it is very true that letting go of our narrative about the world, about people, is actually letting go of that kind of center of the universe, me. Hmm? And that's asking us to explore another way of being in this world without actually being the center of it. Now, boredom is actually very related to some of the, the hindrance factors. It's very related because it's a veiling factor. It's a clouding, a camouflaging factor. Now, I have really, a, a, you know, and, and going to be a very rare person who practices who doesn't come across boredom. Now, usually, you know, and boredom is like, you know, the fear of boredom is endemic in our culture. Yeah. It's endemic. And truly, it is at the root of so much destructive behavior, you know? Mm -hmm. 
you know, how can I make things more intense, more highs, you know, more busyness, more preoccupation, anything to stay away from that space that seems empty. Because when we think of boredom, we think of blank. Mm. We don't think of empty, we think blank. And there's so much wisdom. I mean, I could, I could rhapsodize about this for hours, but I won't. But there is so much wisdom to be found within the state of boredom. Yeah. Because boredom actually is revealing so much to us. It's revealing to us, to, for example, how much actually dependency we have upon the world of events in order to feel awake and alive. Huh? And that if we're deprived of the events, which is why we're always event-making, you know? We're event-making because that makes us feel alive. It gives us someone to be. So it's an addiction to event-making mm. because that seems to be uh, you know, rescuing us from disappearing. Now, boredom often arises in, in relationship to the neutral Vedana, the neutral feeling tone. You notice when there's a big pleasant feeling tone in practice, we're usually not bored. We're very interested. What's going on here? You know, it's lovely, it's delight, there's stilly. If there's an unpleasant Vedana tone in meditation practice or in life, we're usually not bored. We've got things to do, we've got things to work on, we get projects, we get agendas. You know, some of it wholesome and skillful, some of it not. Where does boredom arise? Most in the neutral Vedana. We think nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. And if nothing is happening, I'm not happening. Yeah. Right? That's the, the, this is the, really the crux of the issue. You know? If nothing is happening, I'm not happening. Well, first of all, it's a nonsense because life is happening. Hmm? It's just that I have not got an event to chew over. And we don't know what to do with that. You know, we don't have a pleasant or an unpleasant to chew over. We don't know what to do that because life is happening. So in a sense, boredom is really can go two ways. It can go towards make something happen, or it can be a little signal to say, Let, let's drop into a sensitivity that really connects with life as it is. Hmm? Also notice in boredom, there's not some, in the neutral Vedana, there's not so much a playground for selfing. You know? Pleasant and unpleasant Vedana become the playground on which selfing is built. Neutral Vedana, and there is quite a lot of neutral Vedana tone in this world, neutral fe feeling tone in this world. Much less foothold for selfing. Now, this could be very good news. Now, I think one of the essences of samadhi and one of the essences of sati, mindfulness, is eventlessness. It's eventlessness. Because life is happening, fully connected, fully present, fully alive to the life that is there. But I'm, I am not isolating phenomena within that flow of life and saying, I'm either making this happen or this is happening to me. So in a sense, sati in its deepest sense is eventlessness. And that doesn't make it neutral. It makes it alive. It makes it alive. But it's not as then the Buddha used the term, well, he used a few times, but one of them John referred to the other day, sign-making, you know, attributing, you know, there is this, there is that, I'm marking things with signs in relationship to me. But the other metaphor that the Buddha uses a lot is house-building. House-building. I keep building houses, building edifices. You know, a little sound comes, you know. Oh, I like that sound. How do I get more? But I wonder what it is, you know. Oh, it's the ice cream taco. Oh, I'll go get my car and go to Barry. I built a house. 
You know, I've built an edifice, and I am at the center of it, whereas what, what is actually the sound is coming to hear it wholeheartedly, with, with a wholeheartedness of sensitivity. It's fading, something else is arising. The samadhi, the sustained, sustained collectedness is present within that flow of life rather than building dams or building houses. Anyway, that, was a lot, that was a short discourse on boredom. Yes, I know. I, <laughs> I, I was, I was going to actually say, I can too can wax lyrical about boredom. <laughs> but Christine has been waxing for so long, I don't think I can do it now. I just want to make a couple of comments about that. I just think, just to reiterate what she's saying, is that boredom is the greatest teacher. It really is the greatest teacher. Um, also, when we begin to look at boredom, it really is the underlying cause of a trying to amuse ourselves to death. You know, that's what we're trying to do most of the time. We want amusing. The first thing you learn when you encounter boredom is the mind going, come on, entertain me, come on, I want entertaining. You know, it's, it's that natural tendency of the mind to want to be entertained. It's almost passive. Come on then, do something for me. Yeah. Now, when you get into the state of boredom, the breakthrough of boredom gives you the world. Yeah. In other words, it makes you move from falsity and illusion into the world. You move out of the stories and the stories of the events and the events, the event making that Christina refers to, is also the I making, because I am somebody who is in control of the events that are being made, or at least I think I am most of the time, and even if I'm not, I can create stories around them that give me the illusion of control around it. And the moment you start to drop that um, and actually be confronted with just observing, then of course it seems boring, because the natural tendency of the mind is to do lots of things. It's the movement away from doing and the substantiation of our being through doing, activity. You know. But uh, this activity mostly and the stories that we create around the activity are totally illusory, they're totally fictitious. You remember that phrase I gave you, which actually came out from, from a novel, which is, trust me, I'm telling you stories. That's Mara. You know, that's in your ear, whispering in your ear, trust me, I'm telling you stories, that this is the way things are. And the moment you start to s literally sit still in meditation, in that stillness, there is a natural arising of boredom. There is a natural arising of it. The breakthrough of it, however, the coming through the other side of it, reveals you the world. The world is given to you, as it is, with all its beauty, with all its wonder, and with all of its terror as well. I'd, I'd had the practice I had to do, and, and, and um, this was one of the most revealing things I ever did in my Tibetan practice, was literally look <coughs> at... I had to sit in front of a scene, of a window, for... It was over 24 hours just watching the scene. First thing the mind did was go, I can't stand this! <laughs> just rebelled. And then in the end, you begin to notice subtleties, like little changes of light, sound, movement, the comings and goings. This was, wasn't a scene that was particularly beautiful or dramatic or anything. It was just across a, a plain in India. Um, but just the wonder of what's revealed to you when you really, when that story and narrative starts to drop away, and you really start to hear, see, smell, you know, what's going on there. And actually, that's far more interesting than the stories. 
And, you know, there's a Zen, Zen teacher once said, you know, if you find something boring, do it for another five minutes. If it's still boring, do it for another ten. If it's still boring, do it for an hour. Still boring, do it until the world comes alive for you. Mm. And I think also I just want to mention that I think one of the great genius, <coughs> part of the great genius of the Buddha is that he is always building, encouraging us to build on what we already know. He's mm. not encouraging us to imagine this sort of romantic stillness or this romantic sense of collectedness or a romantic, you know, an unknown sense of kindness or compassion. The Buddha was very, very clear that we have all glimpses mm. of these qualities in our lives. Hmm? And actually what we're learning to do, and this is part of sati, is remember them. Remembering what is possible. But the whole of the practice is actually really uh, placed upon building upon what we have already tasted in our lives. That's why people come to practice and it actually doesn't always seem so weird or foreign because actually we're talking about something we already know. You know? We talk about stillness well. We've all had moments of stillness in our lives. You know? We talk about compassion. We've all had moments of very natural compassion. What we are doing in the practice is not making these into lucky accidents. Mm. I'm sorry, the, the, this lady, she said, that was, you, 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 you were waiting before. Uh, this is a question about a calming technique. Um, when the Buddha um, gave instructions for meditation, and he says, breathe short and then breathe long. And I, I wonder if he no. could be referring to some sort of yogic breathing mm. practices. No. I find that if I, you know, sort of hyperventilate a little bit, I just... He didn't actually no, he say didn't that. Actually say that. <laughs> he didn't actually sorry. <laughs> he said, no if the breath is, is short. short. No if the breathing is long. He didn't actually say do this. It, no, he just actually so the encouragement was to know the breathing as it is. Yeah. Rather than no, didn't, didn't, no, no, no. didn't. I mean, if you read the discourses, you will see that the Buddha was remarkably short on prescriptive practices. Mm. Very, almost, you just don't find them, you know. And the practices, the techniques, etc., have really been developed over time in different places, different teachers. And, you know, if, if you look at like insight meditation, there is as many styles of insight meditation as there are teachers. Because basically people just teach what works, you know, they found effective for them and what they found effective in their teaching. But the Buddha didn't reify technique in any way. No. Uh, uh, and just worth, it's just worth pointing out as well that uh, the Buddha is deliberately saying, observe when you're drawing a long breath, observe when you're drawing a short breath, and know the difference between the two. And it was a direct opposition to yogic-type breathing exercises, which were controlling the breath. You know, so he was actually setting his stall out in direct opposition to the other traditions that were around at the time. Because there's another discourse, you know, where there's a group, a group of gathering of arahants and all these very awakened folks, you know, and somebody comes to the Buddha and says, you know, why is that person over there practicing 
jhanas and that person over there is practicing metta. And so clearly a lot of these practices, you know, and styles were around. Mm. And the Buddha said, well, you know, different temperaments, different temperaments. But I think but what you find in the canon, what you find in the mm. suttas, is, is much more the framework for contemplation. You know, there's some very strong hints in there <laughs> about what we're contemplating and why. But it's much more stressing the, the, this journey from distortion to liberation huh? through contemplation. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, the Buddha in many of the texts actually is expressly avoiding techniques. Um, in one text that's in the Majjhima Nikaya, he actually says, for example, experiment. And this is one of the big things, of course, which I've, often in the West we're linked to technique very deeply. We have this illusion of technique. Somehow the technique's going to carry you through. And if only I get the technique right, everything's going to be okay. And that's not necessarily the case. Because it requires individual, in a sense, tinkering to get it to the right, you know, um, adjusted for yourself in the way that you use it. And the trouble with a lot of the yogic traditions at the time, they were very, very specific. That you had to do it this way, and in doing it this way, it was very, very precise. If you want to look, there's, there's, a, there's a sutta in the, in the middle-length discourses, which is called the Noble Search Sutta, the Aryapariyasana Sutta. Uh, in that, he talks about his training in some of those techniques. Uh, and you see him saying, well, in the end, it wasn't conducive to liberation even when I perfected the technique. Are you saying that teachers would be recommended then doing pranayama or some other yoga? No. No, no. I mean, people have to find skillful yeah. means. But I think what's very, very important is like what we've been doing here all of these days, like the Bhajankas, the awakening factors. You know, it, the Buddha gave a tiny little bit of, you know, emphasis to styles, techniques, a huge emphasis to this. Mm. Huge emphasis to this. Because this is actually what is transforming, not the technique. This is what's transforming. The understanding of this, the application of this, the cultivation of this, this is what leads to nibbana, according to the Buddha, and not not a technique. Mm-hmm. We need to repeat the question because people are not hearing the question. Okay, well, the, the question was basically that um, in the Satipatthana, um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is a sutta on the, on the establishing of mindfulness, that the Buddha is recommending us to know the breath in a particular way. Um, which is, appears to be almost like technique. It appears to be almost like technique. The way I would actually say, and actually if you look through not just that text, but loads of other texts um, as well, is that the Buddha always likens the skilled practitioner to an artisan, somebody who's very skilled in a craft. You know, so in the Satipatthana Sutta, for example, he, he likens it to a wood-turner somebody who's turning wood. So he says, just as the person who's working on one of those old ancient lathes knows that making a long cut 
or know they're making a shortcut, then the skilled practitioner should know that they're making a long breath or a short breath or engaging in a long breath mm -hmm. or a short breath. Now, personally, I don't think, although it can be efficacious, that's not like keep on noting short breath, long breath, short breath, long breath, because the skilled artisan isn't doing that, isn't it? They're not going, I'm making a long cut, I'm making a short cut, I'll make another long cut. You know, they just do it. It's a technique, it's a skill um, that's evolving, and that is the, the, the major way that the Buddha is seeing. You become skilled. So it's enskilling you in many ways. And we are talking about skillful means here, like if you come on a retreat here or other places, you know, various styles and techniques will be offered, but you have to think, what are they in the service of? You know, for example, if a person comes on retreat and we suggest that they're being mindful of, of their breathing, well, what are we suggesting? Samadhi. Mm -hmm. The collecting, the gathering of the mind. You read on in the Satipatthana Sutta and you come to the place where calming the body, calming the formations, what is being suggested here? Pasadi, the calming, the tranquilizing, the cultivation of serenity. Then it goes on in the Satipatthana <coughs> Sutta, you know, <coughs> contemplating the mind as the mind or the body as the body. What are we cultivating there? Sati. You know, so you can really get a sense how the, the encouragement or the technique or the guidelines is actually tracing through the factors of awakening. Yeah. Hmm? And that's what's given the most emphasis. I think, well, just one more question, then we must move on, because otherwise we won't have yeah. enough time to cover it. I think and is that the distinction that helps to think about Buddhist fiction? I think that is very much a distinction that helps us to think Can't about the other it. question. Yeah, I mean, really, it was, the it was a question about Buddhist fiction. You know, um, is, is, is that kind of almost paradox in talking about Buddhist fiction? Because obviously, in Buddhism, we, we're aiming to get to the what really is. Um, therefore, you know, is the distinction, and this is the distinction between fiction which leads us astray and fiction which somehow leads us to the goal, perhaps. Is, is that okay? Yep. Well, I, I would agree with that. I think that's exactly what the distinction is. The fictions or the... Fa actually, a better word than fiction is fantasies, actually, that we engage in. The fantasies that we engage in pretty well mostly end up with unhappy endings. Yeah. Um, they're tragedies, actually most of the fantasies we live in ordinary life and the, the stories that we tell ourselves. Uh, storytelling, by the way, I think is just a natural human thing. This is what we do. You know, ever since you know, the first people were able to communicate with each other, I think we've told ourselves stories. Um, but I think the kind of fiction that's useful and in the service of the Dhamma is, is something which reveals something to you. Um, I always, I love a quotation by Picasso, when Picasso said, art is that peculiar kind of lie that tells the truth. Yeah. 
And I think this is, the, this is, you know, if you're talking about Buddhist fiction, I think that's exactly what it is. It's the kind of thing that will tell the truth. Great works of literature, great works of art, and sometimes music as well, will reveal things to us often, particularly in this culture, which is saturated in those things, um, which sometimes all the study of the Dharma books won't necessarily give you. I mean, I encourage very much people to read um, stuff within their own culture that actually has similar resonances to that which is within... Buddhist culture because you know some of this literature that we're referring to is two and a half thousand years old and it's pretty hard going um, you know because it's uh, written in a particular style or composed in a particular style which is full of Indian hyperbole you know it just it is this is the way they were composed in those days which don't necessarily sit well in the way that we read and appreciate things these days um, sometimes those peculiar kinds of lies which tell the truth can actually tell us a lot and I think Buddhist fiction, if you like, is, is, is not a paradox. I think it is something which can lead us to... to can that. I recommend Charles Johnson? Yeah, which... <laughs> John we need to move on. Yeah, we, need to, we do need to move on. I mean, one of the things I suppose I, wa I want to say about this um, skilling that I was speaking about in, in relationship to one of the questions, and I think it leads immediately into this, actually the whole process of even beginning to come to samadhi-type states is a skill that we're learning. It's a gradual skill, just like we're being skilled in anything else. Um, the way that we would learn, for example, in our, you know, perhaps in our teenage years, to learn to drive a car, to learn a musical instrument. And so the stages of that, you know, learning the skill process is exactly the same until you become skilled. And that skilling is really, really one-pointedness. Oh, I just realised we forgot to give a break, but it's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to get a long break in a few minutes. <laughs> so, for example, there is something within the tradition, um, which is within the text, and it's also found in other commentarial literature, which is called the five limbs of jhana. The five limbs of jhana are actually the process of becoming skilled in this business of concentration. And I'm not, I was going to write it up on the board, but it would just take too long. And we have a brief period of time. But it goes something like this. In the first stage of jhana, there's a lot of busyness. There's actually a lot of busyness or the, in, in the first stages. Uh, there is vitaka and there's vichara and there's piti and there's sukha and there's ekagata. Yeah. Now, all those things are present. Now, let me translate those for those who don't know what these words mean. Uh, vitaka and vi uh, vichara and vit vitaka and vichara. Vitaka means actually, taka actually in Pali means to reason things through. It means to think them through. So it's often used as um, sustained and applied thought. Yeah. So thinking it through and then applying it. That's the first stage of learning anything, isn't it? When you're learning to drive a car or learning a musical instrument, you've got to know how to do things. You have to think about them. You know, when to change gear if you're in, as we often have in Britain, rather than the automatic cars, have all these gear shift cars. You have to remember to when to press the clutch and to change the gear and to when to steer and all the rest of it. You have to learn all of those skills. Out of that, even in the most basic form of um, and rudimentary being able to engage in the task, arises a little bit of joy out it. Ooh, <laughs> a little bit of a frisson. Yeah. I can do it a bit, then you hit the lamppost. <laughs> yeah. um, there also comes a little bit of happiness out of it, sukkah, a little bit of blissfulness out of it. 
and there has to be a degree of one-to-pointedness, otherwise you're running up on the curb all the time. So there's all those things involved in that first stage of the skill. And in learning the skill, there's a progressive dropping away of the elements. You know, so in the next part, there is vichara, there is suk- the piti, and there's sukha, and then there's ekagata. So in other words, now we're, a bit, we're not having to think about it so much, but we're still having to apply ourselves. There's a little bit more joy. And there's a little bit more happiness at doing this, and there's a little bit more concentration, a little bit more one-pointedness. Next stage we move on. We're not thinking about it now. We're engaged in the task, much better. So there's a lot more joy, a lot more happiness and bliss, and there is a lot more one con- concentration. You know? And I'm not going to go through the whole thing because I can think you can see where it's going. So the point is we end up just being completely concentrated on what we're doing. You know, with no scattering, no disturbance, there's not really even joy there, and there's not really even happiness there. Because those are things which can come in and disturb. But we're concentrated, we're absorbed into the actual task that we're engaged in. And this is why, and again echoing something Christina just said earlier on, is again what the Buddha is saying, build on skills you already have. We're not trying to do something which you don't have. We're trying to do it in a very specific way, in a very specific context. Now, that particular example I've given you, of just learning ordinary ordinary skills, driving, learning a musical instrument, all the things we do in life and become skilled in doing them, we go through all of those stages until we perhaps become proficient at the end of it and not thinking about ourselves. The worst driver is the one who's thinking about themselves constantly, perhaps. Okay. (laughs) So when we're talking about the jhana stages, what we're talking about is in fact those stages of becoming progressively absorbed. And really this is all that's meant by one-pointed concentration. This ekagata is one-pointed concentration. That is all. Where there is no sense of the self obtruding continuously into what we're doing. And one of the benefits of jhana practice, um, and there's a lot of discussion around this in the text and both within teaching circles and everywhere else about the relationship of jhana to insight. Well, it seems to be that certainly they're yoked together. Concentration and insight come together. In fact, you don't actually just get concentration, you get insight as well. You just don't get insight, you get concentration as well. You don't get just meta, you get insight and concentration and so on and so forth. You know, so the, the, the things are not being held separately. There is no such thing as what I'd call a pure practice in that area. So when we're talking about samadhi practices as being these overall cultivation practices, which I tried to indicate earlier on, then we're not talking about you know, just doing concentration or just doing insight or just doing that. They include each other. And this is a far healthier way, I think, to, to hear about the practices and the way that we're doing them. You know, that we're actually engaging in developing all of these things at the same time. They all eventually lead to the same kind of ends. Yeah. And just, just the last thing I want to say, and I'm, I mean, we could go, this would take a whole other day to do it, but it's, it's also actually acknowledging that wise concentration or wise samadhi 
It's also associated with all karmically wholesome states of consciousness. Hmm? So why samadhi is really linking in with all of the other factors and it is actually building wholesome, hmm. karmically wholesome states of consciousness. Ones that don't have the residues, ones which are the source of wise action, wise speech, wise intention, source of kindness, source of compassion. And some wise samadhi, samadhi in the way it's being used here, is actually the source of all those, those, those karmically wholesome states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And part of it then, you know, a very simple part of that is knowing what to give attention to and knowing what not to give attention to. Now, traditionally, there are 11 practices, and a bit like last night, I'm not going to give you them all because um, I think there's ones that you need to hear and ones perhaps at this stage you don't need to hear. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, there's confusion about the use of the term one-pointedness, ekagata, um, and samadhi um, as w within these practices, basically. And really what I want to say is ekagata, the way it's used generally in, in um, jhana practice, is it's a synonym for samadhi. But does Buddha use ekagata in the text? Or he does. does he use no, 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 he uses both. He uses both terms within the text. Uh, and one has to bear in mind, sometimes terms which appear to be different are actually synonyms. They're just coming at it from a slightly different angle, that's all. You know, literally, ekagata means just to hold one thing in mind. And one of the definitions of samadhi is exactly that, to hold one thing in mind. And that's, that's a much narrower definition of samadhi, by the way, than the one I've been trying to give you. Yes, yeah, so perhaps before I go, go the, give you these practices, and I'll pick them up later on this afternoon, um, I think perhaps we ought to finish it because it is quarter past 11 now, and it's uh, into a walking period. Yeah, so our plan for the day, by the way, you know. And our master plan. Our master plan, <laughs> which are made to be sabotaged, <laughs> is that this afternoon, you know, you've noticed that instead of the small groups, we're having a teaching session because basically we ran out of time. Um, um, but this afternoon, we, we really want to spend the afternoon on upeka, on equanimity, because this is actually the fruition, in many ways, of all of the other factors, and we would hate to leave anybody unawakened. <laughs> 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 so we, we'd like to spend the afternoon on, on upeka, on equanimity. Um, and then this evening we want to make much more space for kind of bringing it all together. Any questions you have, you know, things that are left lingering, to leave, the re you know, to leave without residues, to go to bed without <laughs> residues would be a grand thing. So this time now is a, is a walking period, then we'll come back for a sitting before lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.